If you are ready, I'm ready. Ready? Ready to go. Hej och välkomna till Dataministeriet med mig, Filip Jansén och vanligtvis även Anders som tyvärr inte kunde medverka idag. Istället har vi med oss en gäst från Irland och jag kommer därför också att byta till engelska. Hello and welcome to Dataministeriet. Mr. Brendan Quinn. Thanks, Philippe, for having me today, and for um, and it's gonna be great to actually talk about um, my experience implementing GDPR and how I encapsulate it in my book, the Data Protection Implementation Guide. And the subtitle is called "A Legal Risk and Technology Framework for the GDPR." General Data Protection Regulation. Very interesting. Of course, I read the book. And there's a lot of great, like step-by-step guides, case law, how to do things. And uh, to start off with, I will uh, emphasize the word technology in in the subtitle, because you do get into a lot of details that is great for a lawyer about what is anonymization, what is different. Uh, facial recognition or biometrics uh, collection. So how do you know all of this? Two ways from work and also from study. Back in 1995, I did data protection as part of a, of a master's in commercial law. So it was one quarter of my master's. And then in quite a lot of jobs I worked in, I dealt with data. So so, so the roles I was working with were, were in highly regulated organizations like financial services and banking. So the, the, so the principles which are in Article 5 of the GDPR now was very much part of my everyday work because I would have worked in kind of a product function. And those roles would have been kind of multi-skills that you'd have to have finance, legal knowledge, and technology knowledge. But I also have a, like a distinction postgraduate in fintech And that would have that would have introduced me um, to the activity of GDPR, but it would have also covered topics like cybersecurity, AI, and machine learning, and facial recognition. And in jobs I I would have worked in, um, quite a lot of the algorithms which actually are behind AI and machine learning, I would have used those techniques in my work. But I've but I would also be involved in building software. So I would be building privacy and data protection controls into software into third-party software, but I've also built into my own product as well, um, which is this kind of a supply chain product for, for compliance that companies can manage their supply chain. So so, so I have experience on both the legal side and the technology side. So, so but I would have studied the maths, which would be behind technologies like facial recognition, machine learning, chat GDP. So I would actually, so if I actually interact with these, I would have a fair idea um, what algorithms are actually and what's actually going on in the background. And... And I suppose since I've actually done the stuff, some of the stuff which people talk about as being the risks, as as part of as part of my work, I I I, I can understand it from the legal point of view and technology point of view as well. So so now you talked a little bit about your background, and we jumped straight into your book. But yeah, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about these uh, interactions and and what you're up to right now? You're running your own external consultancy firm 
Um, yes, mainly ma mainly the type of work I, I do. I do a lot of work mainly for, I suppose, technology companies raising venture capital. There's quite a lot of em emphasis there around um, due, like due diligence work there, but also tend to do a lot of work in healthcare and health tech. So, so quite a lot of my work would involve data protection impact assessments. I'm, I'm probably be doing a lot of work as well around things like pseudonymization of data and data anonymization. Um, I have a lot of projects in that particular area which will be taking place late, later this year. So that's very inter interesting for me because it's easier to find people with the legal skills and the, the, than I suppose to find people who can actually understand the technology and apply the legal rules to that. So, so quite a lot of work I do is around supporting DPOs because internally, you know, the DPO is an advisor, but the but the DP, the, I suppose the DPIA, for example, needs to be done by the by the by the team. So, so they might use someone like me as an external party to to work with the teams who actually who actually put together the DPIAs, or they could want to anonymize aid. That's particularly important in the healthcare sector. So, so there tend to be that kind of that kind of work. Um, the, the kind of more complex work tends to be tends to be work which I tend to do. So, so obviously you're from uh, Ireland, and you, and you told me before we started recording, you live in Dublin, and uh, we all think of Ireland as uh, one of the tech hubs in Europe and EU, as you have Apple. I think it's in Cork. Yes. And you, you have Facebook uh, and a bunch of other like huge tech companies and uh, is that why you see also a lot of tech startups in ireland yes do we do we do, do i could but i suppose the nature of the type of work i i do, do, do we, some of the work will be international in nature particularly like there's a big tech um hub in the uk i would be an advisor here as well there's a there's a venture capital arm of the, of the government here called Enterprise Ireland, and I would be in, I would work as an advisor to that particular organisation, but there, but in, but in terms of the large technology companies here, many of them are here and they're here on the under the one stop shop. But we, we we would have, of course, I think it's nine of the top ten technology companies, US technology companies, would have their headquarters, European headquarters in Ireland. So they'd be doing a lot, they'd be doing a lot of process, processing here, but but in terms of the work. I do. I would have very little, little interaction with those large technology companies. So, if you compare your work, as you said, you're working with uh, maybe venture capital, smaller startups, and so on. And GDPR, if you focus on that, is quite, I would say, theoretical, risk based, principle based, and to be honest, very complex. What's your view of like ordinary people non-privacy professionals actually understanding how to implement gdpr into an organization yeah i i i think that, i suppose i think the law is highly complex even for even for someone like myself who's got a vast range of experience like i would like i would understand i've experienced a project management risk and um, cyber security technology law and I, I, I'm like I'm a both qualified lawyer and qualified accountant, so I know about controls because there's quite a lot of auditing. But even for me, the the law the law is, the law is quite complex because it requ like, requires you to have a quite a lot of deep knowledge of European law as well, which um, which a lot of people who don't come from a legal background might necessarily have, and even then, a lot of lawyers might not actually have a deep understanding of European Union law. 
and that's that's kind of embedded in this so well, one of the things I, I always feel about G, this whole thing gdpr there's no proper training for people entering the industry like the industry at the moment is dominated by the iapp and their qualification but there's no kind of european alternative there's not much focus on the cyber side or the security or risk or project management like suppose there, i suppose the risk is supposed to a certain extent the CP, cipm but 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 this, I suppose in terms of this, but then I also look at a lot of the guidance which comes out of the DPAs, and although they're very knowledgeable, a lot of the I, I all generally feel that the, the guidance that's produced is not a form that's useful to most enterprises. Like recently, I looked at the at the SARS um, guidance which came out of the European Data Protection Board, and of sixty pages, and then I, I compared with what's my book. What I'm doing tells people how to go about doing. SARS, the step-by-step, how do you identify someone, the flow is going, how you create certs, how you redact documents. Whereas if when I look at the at the guidance from the European Data Protection Board, it don't really go into that in detail. Even in terms of like the whole identity thing, there's only a small part. So there's quite a lot of detail in it. And that's something I come up regularly organizations is about the size of the documents which are coming out. Like how can how can comp, like suppose boards of directors are used to looking at short information. So suddenly they have every single document, everything's out in GDPR is vast and huge. So 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 the thing is, and also as well, one of the things I, I feel is that there's generally a poor understanding of what this is about. So, so the company boards, it's very hard to get buy-in from the company boards because it's not explained properly to them. So as a result, they end up seeing this as, bureau, as something bureaucratic that they have them into. And the CSP is all about documentation, whereas like this is this like I suppose in general this is about the certain elements of GDPR which is mandatory like the rights of the individual and others take a risk based approach so so this 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 but for me this is quite important because I don't pe- people kind of understand that they're like a certain like say for special category data data on people's sex life or health life this is people's most personal data and needs to be protected so 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 people kind of have to kind of understand that it depends very much on the type of data. And we are processing whether it's large scale and what you're doing. So it's so this is quite so this is quite a complex regulation. And obviously, it's interesting because you mentioned risk here, and you write quite a lot of, about risk. And uh, one thing I found challenging is the different concepts of risk. When yeah. we talk, when a privacy professional talk about risk, it could potentially be the risk for the data subject. But when you talk about risk, normally it's actually the risk for the organization as such. Yes, yes, yes. Well, like, yes, I suppose. I suppose. I suppose these. This a law like GDPR is very much like even when it says it in um, the recitals and legitimate interest. Um, this is about balancing competing rights. And when you're creating a law, you're you're balancing you're balancing competing rights. So so you have to see it from the point of view. Of, but 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 I suppose the GDPR talks about the risk to the rights and freedoms of individuals but at the same time there is also the risk to the organization of getting it wrong so but, but i suppose when they talk about the risks to the rights of freedom they're talking about the people's rights say for example in articles 13 to 22 and their right to be notified of, of data breach their right to to compensation in in, a, in event of a breach so so from this point of view but these rights in the gdpr don't don't they like, don't have a risk-based approach they're mandatory whereas other aspects there in terms of the safeguards controls you meant to take a risk-based approach so 
the more risk there is to the to an individual the higher the controls have and where does when where there's less risk you, you don't have to have the same level of controls but that's something which needs to be assessed by by the, by the enterprises themselves and whether they're a controller or a process but but in general companies don't really seem to understand this this is very much about balancing the rights but then when it, it i suppose then there's a complex when they talk about freedoms they're talking about various freedoms including the, the right to the right to home life or what somebody's called the right but it's the right to data protection but there's also other rights which are impact as well like the right to human dignity the right to freedom of expression the right to run a business so all these rights all need to balance and all the cases when they go to court it's, it's usually just two or two or three or more um of so this, this this is quite complex and i suppose for smaller organizations it's very difficult because they're not going to have the knowledge of european law they're not going to have knowledge of cyber security they're not going to have they're not going to have they might not have project management specialists so this stuff is very complex so when when you describe to one of those organizations you work with what is actually a risk to the data subjects uh, rights and freedoms how, how, yeah. how would you describe like what is it yeah so 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 in general in terms in terms in general terms is quite a lot of what i capture is captured to what's called a, the data protection impact assessment if say if the government for example is, is looking at this and they're like as part of this they have to they have to insert these controls into legislation under the, what's known as a legislative consultation process but the guidance from the european data protection board in terms of this is is it a bit is is different that is much more of a focus on the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of information. So, which which I suppose is w- one element. One element, but they also have to focus. Like, I mean, different different situations can lead to different risks. So, so so the so the risks which are generally considered here are to say things like the risk of, like any any process, the risk of financial loss, identity theft, damage to someone's reputation. Is there any special category data? Focus. Do you need to put in controls that people have control over their personal data? Like this is described in Article Twelve as modality. So you kind of documented can the data sub exercise their rights, and in like Articles Fifteen, right, the right of access. Like say, for example, you, you you could have a system, and you could design a system, and they might they might make they might need to raise their data, or they might need to request their data. It could be difficult you have to have to do manually. So so all these things you have to document in your in your DPIA. But then you're also if you're say using facial recognition and that, that could affect people's freedom of movement their freedom of expression but it also impacts on their right to privacy right to data protection so the, so there's quite a lot of complexity involved because you're talking about all these rights which exist in the eu charter and there's like close to 50 of them and you have like and, and i suppose some of these are, are can, can be impacted in terms of the right to data protection and privacy so you're, you're kind of dealing with these rights not like rights not to be discriminated against when you're processing your data can affect people's right to service. So it's, so it's quite complex. You have to look at these situations, how they're sharing data, are they sending data to the US, like to, to countries which are not considered adequate, like like India or, or the US, and what the controls and safeguards are over, the, are over that. Should they store data in the EU? And so it's, so depending on the situation, it's quite complex. And and no no DPIA is, a, is the same. Whereas... When when I deal with an awful lot of boards of directors, they kind of they kind of think a lot of the stuff is standard, but it's but it's, there's actually quite a lot of bespoke thinking involved to actually do it properly. And in terms of the like initially when I was dealing with um, companies and projects, we we put together an inventory and a gap analysis, 
But frequently now companies which are more mature doing a DPIA will inform the gap analysis and the inventory. So so quite a lot of the work now in terms of being done, like the the data you're getting for the inventory and the gap analysis being worked off the DPIA. So, so, so I think that's a really, really good point. And as you said, it's, it's uh, complex and uh, also it's hard to find maybe all of the risks immediately. I don't think yeah. that you should be afraid of like updating your DPIA as you go along and actually learn about what what actually happened in reality when you, for example, launched a service or a product and then like, oh, this could also happen and then you need to update the DPIA because you yes. didn't think of all the consequences beforehand. Yeah, well, that, 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 that's, that's pretty normal. That's pretty normal. Um, in, 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 ter- in terms of that like but i suppose even there in, in in terms of these things sometimes um i can identify risk in a dpa and and you'd have to you have to decide whether the project can actually go ahead is there enough is there enough there in terms of i say a technology solution if you're going to use, is there enough there to allow it to go ahead or should you pause it like how severe the risk are but like and like and these these are kind of assessments you, you, you that need to be done it's kind of like the the chat GDP um, app is launched, and um, and, it, and I suppose the first questions I asked was it um, did they do DPIA? Because there's quite a lot of risk to um, rights and freedoms of individuals. Because um, you know this is large scale; it's like pulling data from all these um, vast data sets, and they include um, quote commercial data and um, personal data. And um, it's not it's unclear to me and to others whether they've actually done um, an assessment. And I suppose as we've seen recently, um, the Italian um, DPA has um, decided to temporarily block it until um, these matters have been um, looked at more more in depth. I think one of one of the challenges with with ChatGPT and and of course similar services is, as you said, the lack of information. It might yes. be that they have done everything almost by the book, but we don't know. Yeah, well, well, I, well I've looked, I've read both their terms and conditions and their privacy um, policy, and I would see inconsistencies between both of them. Um, but one, like one thing that I suppose people need to be aware of is um, when 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 they're actually in this, they see the customer as the controller and they're the processor, so they need to have so you need to have a some sort of processing agreement in place with them and also as well they they, they in their terms and conditions they exclude liability and you as compulsory arbitration there's no they exclude all class actions and everything has to be done through individual arbitration so so people need to be aware of what, of what they're doing and make sure that they're not sharing any personal data or commercial data or confidential data with any of these generative ai tools until they've they're properly appraised yeah, and I also think that I mean that that's when you use it, but it's also how did they train it? Where did they get the data from? As we've yeah. seen in previous AI solutions, after a while they get really discriminative, or and, yes. they, and they draw the wrong conclusions because they are fed with biased information. Yes, yeah, so, well, I suppose they're created by humans, so naturally they're going to have the inbuilt bias of the people who program it and created the algorithm. But I suppose, and, and I suppose something I posted on as well, in general, 
um, you need a lawful basis to process and collect any of this personal data. And I suppose the only one that's applicable to, to this large-scale processing is really consent because as I suppose the way this is kind of set up in terms of lawful basis is the standard one in the in um, Article 8 of the Charter of Fundamental Rights is consent. And then um, the other legal basis come from this whole concept of proportionality and necessity, which is contained in Article 52 of the Charter. So the standard one is if if, if you um, have a big impact on people's right to data protection, you need consent. Uh, so, so from point of view of chat GDPD, um, the only legal basis that they can possibly li- rely on is consent. And it's unclear have they captured consent. Well, I guess they don't. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, they don't, and I suppose that's what the Italian Garant has pointed out that they that they might necessarily have just have consent to. I, I also saw, uh, I think, yesterday that German uh, data protection authorities are thinking of whether or not to ban it as well. Yes, I think. Yeah, I think I saw. I I, I saw that it was Handel's Blatt or something like that. They, that one of the one of the German DPAs gave an interview. But I, but I think during the pandemic, the the German DPAs had a step back. And and I, one of the things I was surprised when I saw the statistics in um, twenty twenty two, like how inactive the the German DPAs were actually were, considering like when when suppose the GDPR came in, they had more fines than anyone else. And with very few um, cases taken by German GPAs in 2022, but I've seen that the French CNL they tend to be quite proactive in terms of um, US technology and in terms of anyone tracking um, people's activities. And they seem to have gone along to the Garant and asked the reasons why they impose this blocking. So I, I so that would indicate to me that that the French CNL were were, were looking at this issue as well. It's I would not be surprised if. If 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 other if one or more other DPAs did, did something similar to the Garant in the coming weeks, no, I agree. I, I mean, we've seen this, uh, on other areas similar cases. I mean, with uh, Google Analytics, Mailchimp, and other that first one DPA comes out and says something, and the rest will follow. Yes, 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 yeah, yeah. But I, I suppose those complaints have been made to every DPA. Every every DPA in, in in a member state, so uh, I suppose ultimately then, um, since they've all so far all decided the same way, respect other decisions. And yeah, from what yeah. I understand of these cookie tools, they, they, what they do is they they actually don't block the cookies. What they do is they actually delete the cookies. So the Google Analytics thing, from what I understand, works sits client side on the browser. So from that point of view, they're not able to block send the information to Google servers in the US because they're not they're not on the on the server side they're on, they're on the they're on the client side so mm-hmm. so it's not so it's not something which they can actually which they can actually block and I suppose from my understanding from the term the terms and conditions um, that the customer is responsible for implementing these tools properly but even then I've looked at and one of the things I saw in my my book I was did a search on Google and I saw that that, that Google asked me would I like a professional summary of my own book. So from what I understand, um, Google or Bard is likely um, could be used to actually do professional summaries of of published works, which, which is interesting. So so you're talking about Chat GDP is being trained on publicly available information and some copyright information, but Google Bard could 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 be 
um, train on additional data um, and who really knows what's in there yet. So now you mentioned your book again, so let's loop back yeah. to it. And, okay. uh, I think uh, one of my favorite quotes, I already mentioned this uh, before, is that uh, this makes the idea of full compliance with GDPR an iterative process. I think that's so valuable advice as well. Like you're never finished. It's not like a project. It's something you do over and over again, day after day. Yes. Well, 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 but when every day companies like companies, if they're are going to produce new products, and those products are going to be using personal data. So, so, e so each of these each of these new projects and new products has to be assessed for compliance and um, with with data protection laws, and also they'll be using data in new in new ways. So, so for, like some of the stuff tends to be fairly standard. Like one of the things I Include as an example, my book was employee data because, first of all, because it's very high risk to a lot of organizations. Because, as you know, SARS tend to be used in um, litigation by employees if they're dissatisfied, in particularly in relation to um, unfair dismissals case. So I included an employee imagery. So that tends to be very high risk for, for, for most organizations. But when you put any, any product you introduce, you're going to be processing personal data and and one of the reasons why you document all the stuff in the imagery so you can notify people through your data protection notice and also an event of a SAR that you, the whole idea behind this is you, you have to respond to people without delay, but at the very least within one month. So if you haven't documented stuff, you have no idea what data you hold on people or where you hold it. And an event of a data breach, you have no idea whether it's high risk. So the whole idea, you're meant to, you're meant to report this within three days, but if you haven't documented all the stuff, um, you have no idea what data you have or whether this this poses a risk to the to um individuals or high risk that they need to be notified so so the whole time there you have not to notify this stuff and then as well as cases and regulate decisions all the time on areas and 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 this law is evolving in unexpected ways it's kind of like one of the cases there recently was in relation to recipients and of course the cgu said the that um, individuals were entitled to details of the, the named recipients if they actually requested it, named recipients. Yeah, I know the, the recent case about the recipients. That took it a little bit, a step further than we had anticipated when we read the GPR the first time. Yes. So another thing you mentioned is, uh, that I really like is that you refer to Lean and for the Toyota Way and so on and how you can actually use data protection to imp improve the current processes or new processes for that matter. And uh, you obviously work with that. And can you give some tips to the listeners? Like how can you use your data protection work to actually improve the business overall? Yeah, well, what, what, I, suppose, I suppose the whole idea, like when you find an awful lot of what I would call traditional organizations might have quite complex um, systems and and I suppose they're storing data and sometimes they, they, could be, they could be storing data in multiple places and storing data in email and the whole sort of thing is very inefficient. One of the things like this is kind of like very much data protection by design by default. It's very much a methodology for how you collect data and how you use data through your, through your organization. And it's all about efficiency. Well, I suppose some of these kind of 
fair principles in a way don't make sense today because some of them, this whole idea of even a data minimization might have existed a time where storage was actually quite expensive because these these principles have been around for, since some of them ran since the 1970s, when um, storage space was probably quite expensive, whereas, where, where it's quite important now, at the same time now today, because of the risk of cyber threats that, you know, if your email is hacked, if you have all your data stored in your email server, that, that can all be extracted. So so the whole idea behind these these kind of principles and 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 the link to lean is, is making things more efficient. That you should you should have less data, it should all be stored centrally. They should have controls in place when you send data to people like encryption. So but but th these are these are kind of standard things, but a lot of organizations don't use and have. But they but the whole idea behind this, like and one of the things I find an awful lot of organizations, they they could have policies in place, but they they but the things there, the things that, as well as the policies, they need to have procedures, standards, and guidelines. And guidelines are very important because it's it's what organizations should actually be training their employees on, is not the policies, but in terms of those those guidelines. So to make sure that they they actually so they actually follow the procedure and they know how to do stuff properly. But the, but the whole idea, like even there in terms of say subject access request. The GDPR says these things are should be given to people without delay, and they should also have you should also have control that people have control over personal life modalities. But so people are coming more and more. I suppose are used to get things being done quicker. So 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 it's a whole sort of thing like this is you have to make things more efficient. That you collect the minimum amount of data, that you respond to people quickly. That there's costs involved in having incorrect data because something which frequently happens is some data say even like say banking. That somebody could somebody could send someone out a letter, but not realize that the person's is deceased because their the information they possess is out of date. So 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 a lot of the stuff is kind of useful in terms of protecting the dignity of people and developing and, and developing relationships with people and protecting people. So so the, so so so. But I very much relate the gave examples in the book of the those kind of eight kind of principles of lean and how you can use an example for GDPR because I don't think I, I generally think this has been badly explained so boards don't actually see the value in this but the, I think over time that the, the real value in this will be seen in implementing data protection by design and by default. So would you say that uh, like in 2016, 2017, maybe 2018 when we run we all run like GDPR projects uh, not everyone but a lot of big companies did yes. um, that they were a bit too focused on maybe interpreting legal requirements and they should have focused more on how to operate operationalize and implement in practice yes yeah so what, what, what my experience in 2016 2018 and even after that was like those smaller organizations did very little and those that did probably went out and bought a bunch of templates and some cases didn't even tailor them just, just use the templates but a lot of organizations what they do is what we commonly call the the paper shield so they would have they would have like put together their their data protection notes done in inventories gap done a gap analysis if they didn't have a procedure in place for data rights they would put those procedures in place and they probably would have looked at cyber security and then um after that they, like they, they, they suppose they 
they would have they would have adopted a wait and see kind of attitude to see what the regulators did and then i suppose one of the one of the areas which has been a, a key focus in recent years has been around websites because it's been a focus of none of your business so a lot of a lot of companies have all these annoying pop-ups which from what i understand i've seen there's that part of this thing which is comes from of course from the privacy um directive that that they're looking the european commission is looking at whether that picture provision should be in consumer um legislation is it a, is it a consumer protection issue and from my perspective i haven't seen that the detail yet because i think the proposal might be released in the last few days but one of the things for me that kind of indicates that there might be no shrems tree because of that whole issue of um that data issue in relation to that collection it comes a a consumer issue it won't affect third country transfers like be seen much more as a consumer protection issue rather than as a a third country transfer data protection privacy issue it'll be seen as bad consumer protection but it's kind of interesting i think i've seen in the in the european data protection board one of their meetings that they mentioned that they're looking at the whole area of and the overlap between data protection privacy and consumer protection and that's one of the things which is quite interesting from my perspective it is it's interesting from another aspect as well because you earlier mentioned that employees or employee data is uh, like just as important and maybe even more important to some extent than consumer data and if they yes. go down this route will have they forgotten about all the rest of the data subjects no but i i i, I think i i know there's there's very much in, there's very much a focus in in terms of the day-to-day work of the regulators and particularly in ireland that i know that i'm most familiar with quite a lot of the complaints are related to um employment matters and like i i know myself there was one there was one organization i met i met i met um um, years ago and they had over and they weren't a particularly large organization but they had over 50 pieces of litigation with employees that but they're over employee accidents because of the nature of the, of the work so so, so 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 some of the stuff tends and this and this kind of stuff is the type of stuff which tends to end up going in in terms of complaints to day protection supervisory authorities because we only you only ever hear about the large tech ones but Quite a lot of the, the, the stuff which goes in are in relation to people's rights in relation to um, not getting access to their data and um, not having their erasure requests um, respected or so, things so, like right to rectification. So are you saying that the Irish DPA is a little bit more active than it's uh, we, the other of us in other countries think? I, 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 deal, with, I deal with the Irish Data Protection Commission and 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 they they do go they do go through uh, a large amount of complaints, um, but I, I can't say if my I find and um, they're quite proactive in terms of dealing with my any issues I brought up. Them they're very proactive, and they they've, I suppose and in terms of their streamlining their procedures now to speed up complaints complaints handling, and they tend to be more proactive. And I find they I find them very professional to deal with and very knowledgeable but but i think one of the things is one of the things is basically when you actually deal with these issues all the back and forth which goes on and one of the things that before the the day protection commission would look at something they require you to say for example to write to the controller 
and to have kind of proof from writing that an infringement has actually occurred. So, so, so I think one of these states, when he, I think some of these activists, when they're actually putting the complaints, they're putting the complaints saying, you go off and look into this, but they've got, and so, so I think for their perspective, it's quite complex from the point of view of evidence gathering to actually prove some of this stuff. Mm. And it's quite resource intensive. And I think in the beginning, in terms of like the data protection commission, that this was new regulation and people might wouldn't really have have experience of it so so they've probably got up to speed now in terms of the regulation but my my experience is this basically when you're dealing with these controllers they'll fight you step by step even if they're completely wrong on an issue they'll they'll fight um the regulators on it so this in terms of the evidence gathering and the standard which is required to prove things. This is this is quite complex because you have these in Ireland at least these companies and individuals both have a right to, to fair procedures. So so there's a lot of back and forth, and you know you, you could send uh, over request someone, they could take time to come back. So the whole thing is just long, time consuming, and then you're dealing with say for staff and you're probably a lot of new staff in the DPC, and they all have to get up to speed because you know as you know there's a shortage of talent in data protection. So yeah. all of these so so it's not purely a case that the the DPC is not doing their job and they have to be very careful. Like, I mean, I would, that's one thing I would agree with the DPC is, is some of the, if basically, if, if you get one thing wrong, like these big companies, their lawyers will pour over these things and they'll, they'll, they'll take the matter to court and fight you on it. And like, even like I've seen some of the arguments which they've, they've appealed rulings on and some of them are completely ridiculous, but they have the money to contest these things and they can fight these things for years. But, but there are certain things like I don't think the regulators want to deal with. They want to deal with real issues, but I, I don't think the regulators really want to deal with third country transfers. And they're getting complaints in that area, but it's not something which they see as being a really, really important issue because they probably think, you know, they're doing the same thing in Europe as well. So, but that's kind of, so the, so the things they want to do stuff, they want to do stuff about new technologies, like things like facial recognition, children's privacy. So, things which they feel are the real issues they feel that that things like third country transfers and uh third country transfers and cookies are really deflecting people from the areas of what what you would call serious harm like there is there is a lot quite a lot of surveillance on the on the internet but say for example like I mean you could do something about like say the, the the google analytics thing but you have to go along one by one with each controls and tell them to take down their google analytics and like from a practical point of view, that's that's very difficult to do. And and the chances are once, like at the moment, none of the regulators have find any of the fringes for Google Analytics. But as soon as um, one of those companies is fined, that matter is going to go to court and that's going to be held up for a couple of years. It's kind of like at the moment there, with this whole, this whole non-material damages issue, a lot of cases all over Europe in like, like I've heard from countries like Germany, Ireland, um, until there's some sort of, explanation of what is actually the scope of non-material damages a lot of cases in europe are on hold because the majority vast majority of cases there's a limitation of people's rights but there's but there's no what you call major harm you know people somebody hasn't really been injured like you can see things like discrimination cases or say in relation to theft of data or people's health data like say for example one of the things i did came across in dpia is technology and you're selling health notification people, but, but, but somebody, some example, there was an availability issue and the person received a notification or received a non-notification, that could have serious um, repercussions from the health of the individual. And that could be a serious case. But some of these, but a lot of harms from, and a lot of things in relation to individuals are basically personal grievances, 
but um, but the, but the damage is not material. I think that I mean we've seen a couple of cases where they kind of di- the cases were actually dismissed because they could not show any harm. Yes, yes, yes. I think yeah, I think there's kind of focus on it's very much a focus on hurt feelings, but in reality, I kind of think this is kind of if you're what they kind of mean by non-material damages, and I've said this before, is kind of if you're hacked and you have concerns about that, you could you could you you might necessarily have a loss there, but you might want, for example, want to go out and, and buy some sort of monitoring software to make sure that you don't suffer identity theft or um, you don't have any loss. So you could have those expenses, and I think those kind of expenses you can recover for. But then you, you probably could cover for things which are other things you cover, say non-material damages could be potential damage to your reputation if something was stored in an accurately in a in 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 a system. But you know that that, that data could have been misused in some way. So, but I think that I suppose there has to be some sort of the decision of there has to be a decision of this in terms of the CTU and in terms of spelling out and um, the scope of this because I think. What people understand is non-material damages in terms of the traditional laws of torts. This might be slightly different for data protection. So, so what do you say about like if you, an organization, don't execute when you request, for example, uh, DSR, or they do too late? Like if if they give you your the copy of your information like after five months, are you in harm or not? I think it depends on the situation because like you if- did get it. Yeah, but at the same time, there if you need if you need the SAR information for a specific purpose, like and that could affect your, you know, your, your right to use a service or a contract or something like that. Like if 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 there's some sort of like I think it very much depends on the situation because I've seen DPA decisions where somebody hasn't carried out a, a, a correct SARS, they've asked them to carry out the SARS again. But I think it depends on the situation because somebody could require information urgently and could put the SARS. And it could suffer harm because of not having the information. Because this is meant to test the lawfulness and the accuracy of information. But it's, but if, but if this results in some sort of damage to their reputation or financial loss or or some sort of harm to them, then they'd be entitled to re- to recover damage. So I think that's why this law is very much takes a this kind of framework of principles and risk based approach because it's no no one size fits all but then you've, you've one of the things i think the ambiguous language there which is something we discussed before you've seen an awful lot of these new re, new regulations and laws like the ai act the data act they very much spell out so not at the a lot of what's in these new pieces of legislation is actually in the gdpr but it's not but because the gdpr is so complex and it's a general framework people don't necessarily understand it and that these things because it's kind of like you know at the moment there's quite a lot there's quite a lot of provisions which would apply to ai machine learning the gdpr and they're and they're and they're being used in relation to um some of these ai cases but the law but the rules are much more specific in terms of the ai act because like one of the things there is like the use of facial recognition and um, technologies people have no idea should it should that should it be banned in, in, from you being used in public places you know what what are the limits in terms of the use of, of biometric data so all these things are much more specific in terms of the AI Act than they were in the gdpr but a lot of these harms are actually in there like say for example in relation to children's data it's almost impossible to market the children based on this concept of best interest of the child but it's much more specific in terms of some of these these new pieces of legislation so do you think we will see more of these more detailed legislations like the AI Act, 
the data act uh, and so on that will uh, specify or make it more understandable what the gdpr actually meant yeah so i i the way i kind of see gdpr is very like i kind of see it as very similar to the law of contract and law of tort because you would have legislation in place and the fallback is always in situations where legislation applies the law of tort the law of contract and i see gdpr over time having the same situation you have lex specialis and then you have the general law so the whole idea is that the pace of technology chain is taking place so fast that they have to have this kind of general framework in which companies work because if you like like even there the a act they've been discussing the a act for the last year and suddenly generate chapter gdp and um, was released and suddenly and um, this is not covered in the a act so they need some sort of they need some sort of legislative framework to fall back on to tell people what are the principles you use to actually when you're doing analysis of technology and the introduction of new technology and so the gdpr will always be there but but the so so basically because they're because they're paying catch up with technology we have to have this general framework so that's why i see this is kind of this is going to kind of be the general framework and then i have all these specific legislative legislative pieces and and that's and that's the way that's the way this is this is this is evolving but will i mean we saw e privacy directive they've yeah. been trying to replace that with a regulation for i don't know like four or five years now yes uh so and that is obviously more detailed ai uh, regulation is yet to be seen in force yes um maybe there's a challenge actually to have this detailed legislation because they will be obsolete the first day um well then they have to fall you'd have to fall they'll have a fall back on the on the on the gdpr the general the protection regulation and that's the kind of way it's kind of there it's kind of and that's kind of where very much where legitimate interest exists in the gdpr because it's kind of like you have this hierarchy of legal base you have your 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 legislative legal bases you have your public interest and then you have your contract your vital interest and legitimate and your consent so so in areas where you're developing new technology and it's both one of the things interesting is about um, legitimate interest is the processing on legitimate interest doesn't necessarily need to be fair once you don't have a major impact on the rights of freedom of data subjects it doesn't have to be fair so that's kind of there to allow where there's no specific legislative um legislation in place but if something is recognized as legitimate under law it, it's going to allow the evolution and use of technology provided it doesn't pose a lot of risk and if it doesn't pose a lot of risk to people's rights and freedoms then they'll need consent so this is very much how this is laid out EPA say all these legal base are all of equal weight and i don't agree with that you you've do far more work for consent than you have to do for for the use of public interest or the legislative um legal base because they'll all this they'll already have done the the risk assessment and, the, and their dpia when they're enacting the legislation but consent and legitimacy works on the basis that that these procedures have not been done and they're saying this kind of a, a system of self-regulation where you kind of meant to kind of look at this and kind of weigh your rights against the other person's rights and if you get it wrong um it can end up litigation or go to court or complaint to uh, a supervisory territory but that's kind of the way this is laid out and in your book you actually suggest to try to avoid using consent as the yeah. legal basis like the way this is this is kind of and this comes very much from as i said earlier from the eu charter 
Article 8 says you proceeding has to be based on consent or some other legitimate interest laid down by law. And then the other ones, if there's necessity and proportionality, you can use the other legal basis. But basically, if, if there's a, a, de a significant detriment in terms of people's rights to data protection or privacy, then you'll always require consent. But if it's not, then you can look at these other legal bases. And some cases there, if there's very strong argument there, like you know, they can override your your rights consent, but but that is but that's based on it, and they can use sometimes the public interest or the legal base. So so so, so this stuff is 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 quite complex, and like even for like lawyers or subject matter experts, the whole thing is quite complex. Having that in mind, let's wrap up this uh, interesting discussion with some tips for organizations and listeners. So. You had maybe a project before, nothing has been done for a couple of years. What would you consider like being the three, four, five most important things to like, if you want to start, start it up again, the actual data protection work in yeah. an organization? Well, I suppose in, ter in terms of, in terms of this, all the products I, I've worked on, I think it's between most important is is have first of all board support, um, have a budget, um, appoint champions. You should have you should have people who are who kind of know about the processing, and they should be appointed um, voluntary if possible. Because I've seen in organisations sometimes people are told, "Oh, um, you're going on a project," but you should always try and ask people and get their buy-in first. And um, another thing I see, there's no point producing policies if you don't train people. So training people is very important, particularly in terms of operationalize and stuff because people need to understand why this stuff's been done and what the benefit is and one of the other thing i always see is um quality control is very important so there should be a system in place to review and you have to make sure that the the dpo um, is involved in in advising on the processing and they should always in terms of these in these projects you should always focus on the areas of highest risks but personally i i don't see a need for a privacy problem um i kind of think that Quite a lot of this should be operationalized within within the producing a DPIA. So, if, so, so and you should be looking at areas when you're doing reviews. You should be looking at areas where you're getting a lot of complaints, or or areas where you're processing an awful lot of special category data. If you're processing data, health data, sex life data, I suppose trading and membership might might be a le lesser area. But if you're and also if you're doing things like a location tracking, so any of these kind of areas, they typically say. Um, are high risk or areas where DPAs are focused on. Like one of the things I included in my book was basically all the areas throughout Europe. Like it's very hard to do it from the point of view of a general book, but I focus on the areas where regulators are actually enforcing law and where they want people to comply. Like say one of the one of the reasons why I did like treat chapters more as employee issues. And um, employee issues are general issues, but they're very big issues in countries like France and Germany where there tends to be a lot of litigation in relation to employee data protection matters. So, so, so the whole sort of thing when I was in the book was, was divided into two areas, kind of half the book was very much on, on how to operationalize data protection. So, and some of the areas which I, I found where people didn't understand, like I found people don't understand this whole right to erasure and they, they kind of think this is some way related to 
some legislative legal base, but it's related to all the legal base in which you process data. So the whole idea behind this was happening. And folks on the areas where the regulators are either folks, so they're folks in areas like employees, children's rights is a big issue to all the regulators. Like one of the things we're talking about the grant was children's issues. It's a big issue in the UK. It's a big issue in the Netherlands. It's a big issue in Ireland. So children's, children's issues, if you're processing children's data, that's a, that's a big issue. Um, new technology. So one of the things I wanted to, and it was quite hard to balance this book, is I wanted to make this usable for technology people and also for legal people. So so in some cases, I, I explained in quite a lot of detail on certain new technologies where regular folks like AI explaining what it is, because I, and also explaining things like facial recognition, also CCTV. A CCTV tracks an awful lot of complaints. Like I know in Ireland, at one stage under the old law, I think... Some, in some cases, you need to track about 50% of all the complaints received by the DPC in relation to um, use, use, excessive use of CCTV images. Would you say, even say that the last couple of years, we've discussed so much about SHRAMS 1 and 2, data transfer, that yeah. we almost forgot about a lot of other important or even more important issues? Yes, I think it was because this whole area to country transfers it's a very, you can't really resolve it because you're talking about a conflict between um, US law and European law. And I just suppose at the, at the moment, US law has no, has no federal data protection law. And from what I understand, the, the, it's very hard to pass them because the, the, the Republicans and the, and the Democrats can't agree on what the law should look like. So, so it's kind of a, a very deep, deep issue. And then you're talking at the same time there. And all the things they accuse the US of in terms of surveillance, all the European governments are all, all want to do the same thing as well. They want to monitor and surveil people as well. And, and then the whole sort of thing the, in terms of the physical infrastructure, an awful lot of the data flows to countries like the UK and, and, and the way data flows. Um, data flows in, in, in and out of um, Europe through either the UK or Ireland because that's where the cables are. So, so, so in, in, terms, in terms of this stuff, an awful time has been spent doing um, impact assessment. I'm worried about use of US of US software, but 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 I suppose that's raised the issue is um why why don't we have more um European tech? Because I find myself is like you know, as a European software vendor, US vendors have a significant advantage because they have the home market, they have all these successful US companies they can sell their products here who are going to want to buy American. And um, you know, it makes it makes a situation of uh, of Europe, and then it's, it's, it's a lot easier to get access to finance um, in the US, um, more so traditionally than in Europe, where it's much more focused on debt and in terms of banking rather than venture capital. Yeah, and uh, that will be the final words for today. And okay. obviously, we will post a link where you can purchase uh, the book. Thank <laughs> you.